Hi, I'm Zoe Evans with Cornerstone Church, and I'll be reading the scripture for today. We're in Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 8. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hey friends, I hope that you are doing great uh, wherever you are, wherever you're watching or listening to this service. Today is March 21st, which means that next Sunday is March 28th, which is a uh, Palm Sunday. And that marks the beginning of Holy Week. And during Holy Week, we're going to have some special services, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, which... Even fewer of you know about that than Maundy Thursday. Uh, and I just want to invite you to come and be part of those services. Uh, you may have been super COVID cautious and maybe haven't attended a service in person in you know, eternity past, it probably feels like. And I just want to invite you to come and participate in one of these Holy Week services. There's information about that on our social media and on our weekly emails. So I'd love for you to come and be part. For those of you who haven't been in person in ages uh, to, to a gathering, we just miss you and we love you. and. As soon as we can see you, it's going to be great. So hope that you're doing really well. Well, an important part of my journey in the last five or six years or so has been, with God's help, moving from operating in a spirit of anxiety to learning to flow in a spirit of adventure. And today we're going to see through the lens of the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis how um, the journey down the ancient path invites this kind of non-naive hope and optimism that God is actually working for the good of those who love him and liberating us effectively from having to operate forever in a spirit of anxiety and moving to a place where we can operate in a spirit of adventure. In spite of all the sad and tragic and infuriating stuff that happens to us, we can operate from this place of confidence knowing that God's working for good. Well, starting in 2013 and 2014, Emily and I had had this sense of like an internal rumbling that we thought was from the Lord, the sense of calling to plant a church in Midtown uh, Tulsa. But the path from where we were to where we hoped to be was just anything but clear. At the time, I was the junior most associate pastor at Asbury. Uh, I was in the middle of seminary, and I mean, it was just like I had no idea where we were going to go from there. I was really green then. I mean, I'm green now, but I was super, super green then. And it felt like it would probably be even irresponsible at this stage in our ministry for me to go plant a church because I'm just so young and so fresh and there's so much to learn. Well, in situations like this where you have a sense of, of calling or, or an idea of where you want to end up, but you have no idea how to get there, uh, anxiety often flexes its muscles. And it does so by pointing out all of the reason that your dreams and hopes and plans are not going to work out. Anxiety craves 
certainty. And anxiety can be remarkably adept at identifying uncertain aspects of our hopes. And some of us who struggle with anxiety know what it's like to lie in bed at 10, 11, you know, 12 o'clock at night, open-eyed, just thinking about every possible thing that could go wrong with your plans for the next day. Anxiety uh, leads us to idolize control, but lacking the omnipotence to control all outcomes, anxiety can just paralyze us from taking any forward steps at all. It turns out it's quite difficult to go from point A to point B without mustering up the courage to put one foot in front of the other and to proceed open-eyed into the fog. I can imagine that there's some people who are listening, some folks who are in our community where God has put some dreams and longings in your heart or some convictions in your heart, and you have willfully shelved them just because you can't think out in advance, how is it all going to come together? You can't even start. I love how the author uh, Stephen Pressfield says, it's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write actually getting started. I suspect that in the last year in particular, there are a ton of folks in our community who you've just completely given into anxiety in the last 12 months. Like fully aware of what you're doing, fully cognizant of what you're doing, you've just drunk from the fire hose of anxiety. And the people who, who feared everything that could go wrong saw their faith become sight. Uh, and, and I suspect we have a new generation of germaphobes as well. The entire globe came to a screeching halt due to a global pandemic. We got protests in the streets with the politics or a dumpster fire. Schools are closed. Churches online or outside or on the lawn. Our pets' heads are falling off. We feel like everything bad is happening. The people who are afraid of everything bad happening experienced it this year. And they're like, I told you it was going to happen. I told you it would come to this. I've even heard, like seriously, folks who would be parents say, I don't even know if I want to bring children into this kind of world. Anxiety has just reached crazy thresholds, chronic thresholds for so many people. But the question for us becomes, in a world like ours, in a season like this one, how on earth do you put one foot in front of the other and move forward when lots of bad stuff does seem to happen? How do you keep up your hope and keep from giving in to fear and fatalism? And how do you protect your dreamer from getting suffocated by anxiety's thirst for certainty? Well, in the last 23 chapters of the book of Genesis, we have the story of the fourth generation of Abraham's family. Jacob, who we talked about last week, has watched his 12 sons and his one daughter grow up before his eyes. His second youngest is named Joseph, who's kind of like the most favored child, the golden boy of the family. And one of the super problematic generational behaviors of this family tree was uh, like publicly picking favorites among the children. Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac favored Jacob over Esau, and Jacob favored Joseph, his, his 11th son, over all of the others. And he demonstrated it by giving him some kind of like ornate coat. I think it was technicolor. He gave him some kind of special coat that wasn't offered to the rest of the family that designated, this is my, my favorite boy. 
In chapter 37, uh, the text says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and couldn't speak a kind word to him. To add insult to injury, Joseph kept having all of these dreams where his brothers bowed down to him and, and worshipped him to serve him. And then he has the gall or the lack of discretion where he actually tells all of his brothers and his dad about these dreams. So far, a bad move on Jacob's part, not super smart move on Joseph's part, but none of that justifies what comes next in the story. Well, one day Jacob sends Joseph to check on the older ten boys who are shepherding the family flocks. And when they see the golden boy, Joseph, making their way toward him, they devise a plan. And plan A is just to eliminate their brother, just to wipe him off the face of the map. He's insufferable. But luckily, cooler heads prevail, and they go down to plan B. This is also in Genesis chapter 37. It says, Come, let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites as a slave and not lay our hands on him. And then here's a great line. After all, he is our brother. How much like an older brother does that sound? Let's only sell him into slavery. I mean, he's family. Well, normally in a situation like this in a sermon, I would comment on the terrible things that my older brothers, Jacob Odom and Joey Odom, have done to me in my lifetime. Uh, I unfortunately was recently shown evidence that I did the same kind of stuff, not literally selling my sister into slavery, but I did this exact stuff to my poor little sister Jamie, who is seven years younger than me. Uh, when Jamie uh, was born, not long after she became like barely literate, I had a habit of making her sign these contracts that said stuff like, I will stay out of John's room and not talk to him for a week or I will be his slave. And my parents have talked about these stories. I have vague memories of doing things like this. Well, not long ago, my eldest brother Jacob found one of the contracts that I drew up for my sister Jamie. Uh, this one was slightly tamer, I think, than others that I did. But the contract says, I, John, and Jamie do swear to uphold the conditions of the bet. What bet did I make with my seven-year-old sister? I have no idea. It said, if I lose, I must be the other's slave for two Saturdays. And if I don't, I must rub the other's back and feet for one hour straight. Signed and dated, like printed and signed, January 8th the year 2000. God bless you, JB. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Somebody asked me uh, recently how to stay grounded and not to get a big head in ministry. And I said, you know, it really helps if there are people in the room when you preach who know that you wet the bed for a really long time and who know you made your eight-year-old sister sign contracts to be your servant for life. That really helps. Well, Joseph's story uh, continues. He is sold into slavery. He is taken to Egypt, where as a strapping young lad, this influential guy, Potiphar, uh, buys him. Meanwhile, back at home, uh, jo Joseph's older brothers uh, take a, his cloak, they cover it in some animal blood, and they tell their dad, your son is dead. Well, Joseph seems to do well for himself in Potiphar's house. Everything he does prospers. And, and he's given more and more authority over time. And one day, uh, Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph. She wants to sleep with him. And he's a man of integrity and character, and he declines, he declines, he declines. 
till one day they're alone in the house. Potiphar is gone. All of the servants are gone. And, and, and Potiphar's wife makes this impassioned plea. And Joseph resists her to the point of running away. And as, as he's running away, she grabs onto a cloak of his and keeps it. Scorned, she goes to her husband and claims that Joseph forced himself onto her. And when she screamed, he ran for the hills. And here she has this cloak to prove it. Another blow for Joseph. First, he's sold into slavery. Now he was being sent to prison for something that he didn't do. But the man can't be kept down. Uh, again, in prison, the blessing of God is on Joseph's life, and the wardens come to trust him and give him authority, and he's ultimately overseeing the jail where he's imprisoned. Well, in time, the cupbearer and the baker to the Pharaoh, the king over all of Egypt, are, are sent to prison. And there, Joseph the dreamer interprets these bizarre dreams that each one of them has. Well, years go by and Joseph is still in prison, but the cupbearer has been released. And one day the cupbearer is in the presence of the king who reports to everyone in his court that he has had this disturbing dream and he's desperately searching for someone to come interpret it. Well, he calls in the magicians and the soothsayers, the, the seers of Egypt, and no one is able to interpret this dream for him until the cupbearer speaks up. He says, while I was in prison, I met this Hebrew named Joseph, and he interpreted dreams for us. Maybe he could help you. Pharaoh sins for Joseph, who interprets the dream, and it changes his life. As with his father, as with Potter, as with the jailers, Joseph wins the favor of Pharaoh, and again is given vast amounts of authority, ultimately becoming second in command over Egypt, as the story goes. Well, in time, Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream uh, proved true. There had been seven years of plenty, like real abundance, followed by seven years of famine. And when the famine came, Joseph laid up these massive storehouses of grain so that Egypt and the surrounding region could weather the storm. Well, back home, Jacob and his sons are suffering from this regional famine, and Jacob sends his remaining sons to go to Egypt for relief. And then in this moment of Shakespearean irony, Jacob's sons come and bow before the man in charge in Egypt, pleading for help. But little do they know, it's the little brother who they'd sold into slavery, whose death they had faked for announcing dreams that they would one day bow down before him. For every younger sibling who wants revenge on their older siblings, this is the moment that you would dream of all of your life. Uh, Joseph has his brothers who sold him into slavery, who acted as if they wanted him dead. Like they were at his mercy. He could end them. He could shame them. He could make them grovel. Well, what's he going to do? Uh, if you press pause for just a moment, we see like, how does Joseph end up in this position? And how does brothers end up in this position? How did we get here? If we could rewind the clock. Well, you look at the story backwards and it, it doesn't make sense sequentially. You can't draw a straight line from uh, being the little brother who checks on the big boys in the field for dad to being the guy in charge of Egypt's disaster response team in Federal Reserve. Even if you were trying to orchestrate this whole turn of events, you certainly wouldn't put slavery followed by years of being wrongly imprisoned as your intermediate steps to success. 
So how do we account for this great change in situation, circumstances, for Joseph? Well, in the text we just read, we see how Joseph himself understands his story. And how we also see how his understanding of his own story poises him to respond paradoxically to the brothers who betrayed him. In verses 4 through 8, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. They don't yet know who he is. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery in Egypt. But now don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no more plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph believes that, that God in his wisdom and mercy has leveraged Joseph's personal catastrophe to do unexpected good. And he maintains this underlying assumption that there's a divine will that's working redemptively in all things. With MacGyver-like creativity, God took the raw ingredients of Joseph's life and his story, and he repurposes them for good. This is at least in part what the Apostle Paul was getting at in a verse that many of you have heard, that in, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it's precisely this reality of our God who's working for good in all things that we in our anxiety just can't like work into our calculations. The reality of a God who's working for good in all things is something that we just overlook when we've given in and completely indulged ourselves with our anxiety. We see cracks and flaws in our best laid plans and we know, like truly know, that there's no way that it can all come together. But God in His grace fills in the cracks and at times works in spite of the facts. But in our anxiety, we don't adequately account for the presence and the goodness and the power of God in our lives, behaving as if it's ultimately all on us. Now, some of you would even roll your eyes at me quoting this verse, in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, because you've, you've heard that quoted by people who are trying to rush to a premature state of bliss. But I want you to know, this is not just wishful, naive thinking. This is not attempting to just see the glass half full or put lipstick on a bad situation. This perspective of, of believing that God is actively working in, in all things for the good of those who love him does not invalidate or justify the bad things that do happen to a person. To believe that in all things God works for the good of those who love him is to affirm that ours is a truly good God who will not forever abandon the world that he loves and who is guiding all things toward its intended consummation when all will be, be truly and completely and wholly made right. Now you may have noticed in Joseph's, uh, in Joseph's text there, he said three times to his brothers that it was not they but the Lord who sent him to Egypt. 
Now, this is John and not the Lord talking uh, here, but, but I, I take that Joseph's words here reflect the generous posture of a man who has already done the pre-work of forgiving those who've wronged him. He sees the world through like the lens of divine activity and is like graciously letting his brothers off the hook. I don't believe in general that God causes bad stuff to happen to people. You think God like prompted the hearts of his brothers to sell them into slavery? That doesn't quite work. I don't believe that God in general causes bad stuff to happen to people. And I especially don't believe in attempting to tell other people why bad stuff happened to them. Uh, that is not ours to say. And so many of you know, especially if you've had personal grief or loss or, or difficulties, uh, how many foolish and harmful things have been said by Christians who don't know what to say to other people in their grief. When in doubt, just say, I'm so sorry. Uh, we don't need to try to rush into an explanation, really more than anything, to alleviate our own anxiety. They don't need to hear that heaven needed another angel or that God has a plan. God will prove that on his own. You just say, I'm so sorry. I believe that when humans do terrible things, like the young man who killed eight women in Atlanta this week, that the posture of God mirrors what we see in Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus weeping. Knowing that there's an ultimate resurrection to come, he still weeps at human suffering. God weeps with those who weep. I think I can say that it's simultaneously true that God grieves human folly resulting in suffering and is working for good in spite of it. And it's precisely this belief that, that God is good and God is working for good that liberates us. Not only to keep putting one foot in front of the other, but to dream and to risk and to go out on a limb trying stuff that could fail, especially for the sake of the kingdom of God. And for me, the, the, the language that helps me the most is inviting the Holy Spirit to help me to adapt a spirit of adventure and reject a spirit of anxiety. You see, when you have a spirit of adventure, you actively know you don't know all that you need to know. And you emotionally budget for things not to go perfectly. But because you know you are ultimately safe with a good God guiding creation toward its intended end, you try and you fail and you try again and you live open-eyed and curious and you put yourselves in situations where other might, others might think you just got lucky, but you know that it wasn't luck. It was providence. It was God was working for good. You stepped out in faith and God came through. Well, as, as Emily and I and some of our friends started taking steps of faith toward church planting as the years went on, we've experienced these jaw-dropping moments of seeing God come through in ways that was like bigger than our faith. Opening doors that we thought were welded shut, providing for us miraculously, answering the prayers that we were praying with fear and trembling. And God has just blown us away. Even in our church right now, there are answers to prayer that I can't tell you about in the lives of folks in our congregation because these stories are still being played out and written, but uh, we've seen God do this stuff. Well, for me, over the last couple of years, as, as a visual reminder to keep my eyes open for divine activity, for, for providence, um, 
I put this glass jar in my office and I wrote a little post-it note. I'm sure you can't read my terrible handwriting. And just says, sometimes you get uh, lucky. And I had this empty jar and, and whenever I go out, as, as I see coins, I'll pick up the coins and like throw them in the jar as a reminder to like keep my eyes open for those moments where you get lucky. Those moments where you encounter providence and God like wows you. Well, one day my friend Chris, who was Cornerstone's first board chair, came in and saw this jar in my office and he put another post-it in it with a dollar and repurposed it as my curse jar. So thank you, Chris. Great leadership uh, there. Really appreciate it. Man, these jokes just don't land online like I wish they would. I hope that you're laughing at home right now. Well, uh, there's a legitimate cause uh, for fear and anxiety. I mean, I, I know it. I recognize it. I don't invalidate it in the least. And there are lots of ways that you and I may end up suffering in our lifetime. We may experience the invited suffering that comes from making really foolish choices and having to face the consequences of them. We may experience a kind of cultural suffering that comes from being a follower of Jesus who's just like, like on a different path, like on the ancient path versus the popular path. And so we suffer in one way or another as a result of our convictions. And many more of us are going to experience the uninvited and unsought suffering of tragedy and grief or wrong done to us. And we very well may not see in our time the specific ways that God has been working for the good of those who love him through our story. Even so, we must not forget the nature and the activity of God in the middle of all of it. We must not be, allow ourselves to become victims of anxiety or casualties of fear. We need to encourage one another and bolster one another's faith and strength and courage, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who started the story and is going to bring this story to its consummation. I'm reading right now the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And in one of the letters, he's writing to his son Christopher, who is fighting with the Royal Air Force in World War II. And Tolkien wrote to his son, he said, Evil labors with vast power and, and perpetual success in vain, preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. Some of you may be walking through a season that just feels like too much. You feel like you're suffering at the hands of, of evil, like it, it's, it's exercising its power in your life. You might be overwhelmed by anxiety with you know, the busyness of your work, or it could be financial challenges, it could be the lack of work, it, be, it could be concerns about your physical health, your desires to have children, your desire to get married, your fears about retirement and not knowing quite what to do with, like, like who am I apart from uh, this work? In any number of ways, you may be walking through a season of, of intense challenge and suffering and feel yourself inclined toward anxiety. I want to invite you and, and challenge you with the help of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the work that God's doing in the world. To liberate you from this sense of fatalism and like this sense of like uh, being trapped where you see everything terrible that's happening. God would open your eyes to see the good redemptive work that he's doing even in the midst of a difficult season for you. And encourage you to, to increase your agency 
your willingness to take action, like grounded in your faith that God is working for good. And even now, I just want to pray for you that God would multiply your faith and multiply your courage and multiply your hope, helping you to discern with eyes given to you through the Holy Spirit the work that God might be doing, even in the middle of what feels really, really terrible or ultimately like it feels like death. We believe that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And I just pray that God would strengthen you and bolster you and undergird you like in the deepest parts of you with that truth so you can keep stepping forward in hope, rejecting fear, embracing a spirit of adventure and saying no to a spirit of anxiety. We pray for you. Lord Jesus, I feel like everyone I know struggles in one way or another with anxiety and fear. And I, I only know what it's like to live in my own lifetime, but it, things do feel worse. Things feel bad. They feel really stressful, and the country feels divided. We know about every bad thing that happens in the world. And so it's really easy to live paralyzed by fear. Jesus, I pray that you'll help me and help us not listen to our fears, to face them, to name them, but not to be dominated by them. Would you help us to operate with this like divinely grounded hope and optimism, like, like held together, finding ourselves held together with the hope and the belief that even now you're working for good and you're guiding creation toward its intended end when you return to renew and restore all things. So today, and, and would you give us fresh faith and fresh courage and fresh, fresh hope as a kind of daily bread? We're going to need it again tomorrow. But would you fill us today with just enough to get through today, and then would you fill us again tomorrow? Lord Jesus, we love you, we honor you, and we trust you. Trust that you're working for good. And we long for the day of your return. Right, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God bless you all. Good to see you. We'll see you around.